0: And welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is something of a legend, a man whose career as an actor, musician, presenter, DJ and now author has spanned six decades, but is probably best known as a pioneer and pinup of the 1980s new romantic movement. Born and raised in North London, he fell in love with acting before music, starring in a BBC drama alongside Tom Conti and Nigel Havers when he was just 15. But his life took an unexpected turn when he was asked by his older brother Gary to join his band as a bass player. The band was Spandau Ballet and the rest is chart history after they clocked up 23 hit singles and more than 25 million album sales worldwide in a haze of hairspray, eyeliner and diamante brooches. They were global superstars and Hollywood soon took notice when in 1989 he and Gary were cast as the infamous Cray twins in the East End biopic The Craze. The film's roaring success was ultimately the death knell of Spandau Ballet and by the early 90s he and his wife Shirley, a former Wham backing singer, had moved to LA to build on his big screen success. But just as his career was taking off in Hollywood, his world fell apart when he was diagnosed with a brain tumour that required major surgery and left him having to learn to walk and talk again, bringing with it a crippling bout of depression. However, after a slow and determined recovery, he was soon walking the streets of Walford as the villainous Steve Owen, a role which received some of EastEnders' highest ever rated storylines. In the 20 years since his departure from the square, he's been a talent show judge, a club and radio DJ, and hosted a weekend ITV show with his son, Roman, who he also appears alongside on Channel 4's Gogglebox. He's also got a brilliant new book out. It's called Ticket to the World, My 80s Story, which documents his journey through the decade as one of its biggest stars and influencers so we have got plenty to be talking about and i'm so thrilled he's here with me today thanks for coming in martin kemp how
1: are you oh thank you so much that was a, a lovely introduction when i look back I, i'm kind of surprised when i it hear, heard you sound it then i was like really have i done all that but it's uh, yeah it's time passes doesn't it And uh, listen, I've been so lucky over the years. All of those things that you you were mentioning there were really, it's it's just my hobby. You know, it started off as a young kid, enjoying drama school, uh, working with Anna Schur in Islington. It just has been my hobby. Entertainment, that's what you love doing. And you're lucky enough to turn it into a job. I've had so many conversations with Roman over the years and my daughter saying that, Success, really, is being able to turn your hobby into your job. If you can do that, you've cracked it. Yeah,
0: You never work a day in your life. Yeah. And, I mean, they've certainly followed in your footsteps into the the show business world. I mean, Harley's really successful and accomplished. On the production side, Roman is, as we know, Roman.
1: Yeah, they follow my footsteps and uh, they've done a, a little bit. You know, listen, you know, when you're a father, what you really want, you don't want your kids to do as good as you. You, <laughs> you, do, you, you want them to do better.
0: Oh, that's okay. Yeah. yeah you you
1: finish want them that to well. do better. You know, you do. That's what. I set out for Roman and I wanted him to do better than me. And I, I, same, with, same with Harley. Um, you know, I love the day when you're, you're sitting at home and you're playing FIFA with your boy and he beats you for the first time. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a kind of weird pride that happens inside of you, yeah. And that's and the same in life, you know. I, I want Roman and Harley both to do a lot better than I did.
0: When Roman came on this show, he talked to me about those seminal early days... Uh, that you two spent together as father and son at the Arsenal... Yeah, and what that's gone on to mean to him. And I know that as an angel boy, you know, one of the Blitz kids' angels uh, and a lifelong Arsenal supporter, those must have been magic moments for you as a dad.
1: Oh, absolutely. Sitting on the terraces with your boy, that's what you dream of doing, you know. And it was also when I first used to take Roman to football, it was the only place that I would let him swear. (laughs) So it was the only place that you felt like a man, you know. And uh, I remember once we were in the stands and... uh, David Beckham was taking a lot of stick at the time and I was looking at Roman and he's standing on his seat he's going, Beckham, you wanker, you <laughs> wanker. And I'm looking at him thinking, where did that come from? <laughs> Ro, calm down. And it was at a time as well when I was doing EastEnders and uh, I had my hat on and, you know, I was trying to stay a little bit incognito. I didn't want people around me. He's not see And Roman had none of it. You know, he was like <laughs> having a discussion with 20 people around him about the rights and wrongs of offskirts side, You know, and shouting at people. But you, it was him, and he really came to life when he went to football. So I love taking him there. Yeah. You know, listen. Roman's always had a lot to say for himself. He's always been super articulate. You know, I remember times when he was growing up, and uh, we would have dinner at home, and maybe there, George, who uh, George Michael would be sitting at the end of the table. George was
0: Roman's godfather, Godfather, right? Yeah. And we were sitting
1: around the table, but everyone would walk away apart from. George and uh, Roman, who would have the, the biggest debate you have ever seen. Roman was only about 12 or 13, really? but he was so articulate, Roman. George would never back down from an argument.
0: Roman has said subsequently that one of the hardest acts in life he's had to live up to is you, not, not not just about your talent, but your likability of the fact. And, and do you know what? He's so right, Martin. Six decades you've been doing this. I have never met a person that's got a bad word to say about oh. you or your good lady
1: wife. Oh, thank you and so I much. And I think that's
0: why your kids are the, are the lovely human beings that they are.
1: Thank you They're so much. Age. Do you know what? I think a lot of my personality was given to me from Anna Schur. You know, when I went first went to drama club, In Islington, you know, I was really lucky because Islington back in the day when I grew up was really poor. It was like left over from the war. Me and Gary were playing on bomb sites that were left over uh, that the council hadn't cleaned up. There was nothing. We had nothing. We had no money. But across the road from us, this drama club opened up, and it was run by Anna Sher. And uh, I was the shyest little boy. I I was so shy, you know. If I was like this, say, I'd be walking home holding my mum's hand from school, my mum come and collect me. If I saw one of my mates across the road, I would burst into sweat, you know, and hide behind my mum's buttocks, because I was... I was just so shy.
0: And didn't you kind of lean on Gary to do the talking for <laughs> when you? When I was
1: really young, yeah. I yeah. think I didn't speak till I was about three years old.
0: <laughs> this all actually takes me really nicely into the, the questions that I devised because you've got this brilliant book out that I have completely lost myself in, oh, which is your, you. your your take on the 80s. And my God, it's like a technicolour journey through time. I loved it. But... Equally, you and I working together at Greatest Hits Radio. And later this month, we are, uh, on November the 25th, we are hosting for one night only at the London Palladium, no pressure, a night of great music from the 70s, 80s and 90s. So rather than do three different questions today, what I wanted to do was work through your life decade by decade and Anna Share and life in, in a very kind of post-war Islington is probably yeah. a great place to start. So are you ready to dive into yeah, your 70s? Yeah, let's okay. do it. I, I,
1: I'll enjoy that. That's a nice take on it.
0: And that in the 70s, you were a shy boy, mm. a really shy boy that came to life under the guidance of Anna Sher. Yeah. And this was the drama school not for uh, drama students. So it was for regular kids mm. from regular... Um, and, and quite often poor backgrounds, is that right?
1: Yeah, very poor backgrounds. I mean, Islington was really poor when I grew up. My mum and dad had next to nothing. Anna Schur opened the drama club, which was two nights a week, ten p a lesson, and it was in the community centre opposite us in a block of flats. So we were really lucky. My mum put me there not to become an actor, but to get rid of my shyness right. for me to open up. So I think what happened was when I went there, I was like... A piece of blotting paper, you know. I was ready to soak up anybody's input into me. Because and Gary I,
0: went with you, right? Your old yeah, well, brother. Well, Gary went
1: uh, about a few months before me, and uh, he was happy there. So I think if Gary never went, I wouldn't have gone. Um, when I went, I was ready to be moulded. And Anna Sure, bless her, was the absolute perfect person for me to guide me in who in what way I should look at life she had certain rules that were punctuality she was big on she was big on being polite to people she was big on looking people in the eye when you speak to them she was looking she was big on never letting your friends down and I think most of those rules that she gave me then are used today
0: yeah a foundation her reputation was such that casting directors would come to her and say, have you got any young kids that we could look at? So yeah. you ended up doing things like Dixon of Doc Green, which was a huge show back in that yeah, time. Like, yeah, yeah, back in the
1: 70s. But all of my CV was like, kind of like big 70s television, you know, which yeah. was uh, Play for Today, Comedy Playhouse uh, and stuff like that. But you know. big
0: stuff, right? So <clears throat> you're going to a regular comp school, as it would be now, but actually, you're on telly, and telly yes. was a huge thing. There was, like, what, two channels there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely,
1: yeah. yeah. But, I mean, it, I it, you know, listen, I was in those shows, but they weren't big parts in those shows, but they were a grounding for me, and it was a grounding that made me realise jobs were out there that people were love, loving doing. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like my dad used to go to work, and my mum used to make him sandwiches, and he would hate it, and just yeah. look forward to the weekend, you yeah. know, or look forward to... what one night when we go to the cinema or something, it wasn't like that. There were jobs out there that people were working 12 hours a day because they loved it, Yeah, you know. And, and so that was it, it an unusual
0: of, concept in yeah, working-class Britain, for me, right? for me it was. Everyone had a job, but very few people had careers or vocations. Mm. And that's what turned my head, and it sounds like the same for you. It that showed is. you, almost Narnia-esque, a door to another world.
1: Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. I mean, I'd never seen people enjoying their work before, mm. you know. It kind of opened my eyes, uh, and showed me what was possible out there.
0: And then Gary was working, he, he had a band. Yeah. And a guy that came and to become very important in your life, Steve Dagger, was kind of overseeing. Yeah. Um, they were called the Gentry at the time, weren't they?
1: Well, no, they were called Makers back then. When it was uh, a school band, and it was the school bands where it was always Gary's band. But they were rehearsing in the school music room. They would go out on a weekend and they would play to like fifty or sixty of their friends in a in a local pub, right? But that's that's
0: quite a crowd, though.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really good. I mean, even at that age, Gary was writing really good songs. I
0: mean, we, we should explain Gary was and and remains the the kind of the main the sole songwriter for spandau ballet
1: for, for spandau yeah
0: and has written probably some of the biggest pop records of our time he is yeah he feels music he is yeah. he is music yeah. and he has an incredible talent for music for anybody listening that isn't aware of his work yeah. go download yeah
1: yeah I, I, absolutely where i didn't
0: well you know you, you, you were the actor you were the twinkly actor yes and steve dagger spotted you and went Let's get rid of whoever was playing bass and bring your brother in. He's got something.
1: It was that. I used to be the roadie for the makers, right? I used to carry the equipment and set it up in the, uh, their gigs. But secretly, you know, I used to go to bed in the, at night and just dream that one day I would be in that band. Did That's you? all I wanted Aww. was to be in that band. And then when I was uh, just coming up for 17, uh, I remember being at a party and I was standing next to Steve Dagger, who was the band's manager... of the school band. Because Steve Dagger, who is still the manager of Spandau today, was just Gary's schoolmate that right, they'd yeah. asked to be the manager. So I was standing next to him one night and he, at his party and we were both drunk on some homemade cider. <laughs> uh, and he said to me, Martin, if um, we ever make it, I want you to be in our band. I want you to be on top of the Pops with us. And my whole world just changed. It was like, you know, I'm a big believer in that you only get three or four openings in your life mm. that can change your world. Sliding door moments. Yeah, they come come along three or four times in your life, if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was the first one that had ever happened to me. So... Of course, I wanted to be in the band, you know, uh, and uh, but I had to get it past my brother. And Gary did not want me in the band at all, not at all, because uh, you know he wanted to be a rock star on his own. He didn't want his bro- well, his younger brother, who's two years, you know, younger than and him. And you could play an instrument. Around. I could, well, I could play just about play guitar. Yeah. And anyway, I had to go to my mum to tell him to put me in the band. <laughs> 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 that so work. my mum put me in the band. Your right. mum did? Yeah, my mum put me in the band. She had a word with Gary. She said, you know, if you're going, he's going. Uh, and uh, there it was. I was in the band. And Gary said to me, you know, you've got four weeks' time, we've got our first gig, and if you can play, learn to play 14 songs on a bass guitar... Then you're in. I wanted it so much. I, th- I, I learnt those 14 songs backwards, you know, within Inside a couple out. of weeks. Yeah. I don't think I could do it now. I don't think my brain would do it now. But when you're young and your brain's young, you can do it. Yeah. If you really want something.
0: And you guys really wanted it. I mean, you've since described your time in Spandau as five boys who went to Benidorm for
1: 10 years. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, absolutely crazy. We were the luckiest people in some ways. But when I look back and I saw some film of Spandau just recently when we were just... When I was about 17 and a half and it was just before we signed the record deal and I saw this film and there was five really good-looking young kids there. They were playing in great songs. Uh, They were all great musicians. It was a slam dunk, you know. It was waiting there to get a hit record. Uh, The band was ready-made. And um, so it... It kind of like, it didn't surprise me when we uh, took off. It was something that I thought was going to happen anyway. So, and it was kind of like coming into reality. It's
0: amazing that when you look back and you talk about those sliding door moments and Steve yeah. Dagger, if Gary hadn't become best friends with Steve, Steve had such strategy, such mm. vision mm. that w- was unlike any any other manager operating at that time. In fact, well, there, uh, maybe one manager, the manager of the Stones, who he kind yeah, of, yeah. he looked to his blueprint yeah, as something to, yeah. to work... From, yeah, but not yeah. to replicate. Yeah, he managed to get a bidding war for you guys. Yeah, before you'd even really got started see, with see the what, major labels.
1: See, what happened was all of us in the band we were into punk. Punk was the big thing in 1977, you know. It was kind of like the last of the pop cultures that was all in black and white. It was punks were in their leather jackets and their dirty jeans and they were all talking about no future, nothing, was there was no ambition. And it was when 79 turned into 80, the world kind of like went into colour. You know, 79, I think, was when my mum and dad brought in our first colour television. Magazines like Smash Hits started to sprout up. And the world was colour from Black and White, and it was this huge explosion. And so was pop culture, where punk turned into the whole new romantic scene. And I remember when we first started going to the Blitz, and we first discovered that whole new romantic scene, where Steve Dagger was coming along, but he knew, obviously Steve knew about the band, he was still managing it, but he said to us, don't say anything about the band yet, just keep it quiet. Until one day, he said, about six months in, Right, we've been going there. He said, and he knew what we needed to do was sink into the Blitz and become part of the Blitz. And this wasn't an
0: authentic part of its culture. An
1: authentic part of the Blitz and authentic yeah. parts of this pop culture before we announced it. And so it was a really clever move. That's what I mean, by like, Steve, even know? when he
0: tried to break you in America, he made you with no money behind you. Take a load of other Blitz kids with you. Yeah. Which you were like, hang on, Sam, we've got to split what we're earning with them as well. Why are we doing this? Yeah. The reason we yeah, were doing asked this is It at was the marketing. <laughs> yeah. But his marketing vision was he wanted you to be seen as the heroes
1: of a scene.
0: And you yeah. couldn't be a hero of a scene if the scene wasn't with you.
1: Exactly that. Uh, and uh, Steve also wanted, to, when we all went to New York, the point was to show. New York and to show America, it was more than just the band. It wasn't the band dressing up in, you know, glam rock clothes. It was uh, a scene that meant something in the yeah. same way that who represented the mods or the Rolling Stones represented the rockers. It was Spandau represented the new pop culture that yeah. was taking over all of England and all of Britain, which was the new romantics. Yeah. yeah.
0: So let's, let's dive into the 80s because yeah, we end be 1979 with you in the band... Yeah. Okay, let's jump into 1980 and pop a cork on that.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass- So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place
0: Hi, Kate here. Just a quick interruption to let you know that at the end of this episode, we have a special mini bonus episode with myself and the girls from Made by Mamas podcast, Zoe Hardman and Georgia Dayton. And we all get to answer the one big question that we've all asked ourselves many times. So please don't go without giving it a listen. It's 1980. Robert Elms is an aspiring young journalist and now an esteemed broadcaster. Yeah. He's over in Berlin. He sees, as he's taking a pee in Berlin on a toilet wall, the words Spandau Ballet. Yeah. That becomes
1: you guys. It becomes us guys, but... The name obviously belonged to someone else. Somebody else wrote it on the toilet wall. Yeah. And it was a band. And get, my brother will tell you the story that he was walking down Oxford Street once and this German guy came up to him and chased him up the road saying, you stole that name, you stole that name. <laughs> yeah, in those days there was no Facebook where you could check it. You no. could check what bands that were around. It was the first person to have that name and I had a hit record with it. You owned it. That was the name. They never had a hit record. They were just a band that was starting out right. and wrote Spandau Ballet on the toilet wall. And so, uh, obviously, we uh, we were the first to have the hit record, we were the first to become famous, so it was our name. Finders Keepers, right? Yeah, it was that, yeah. <laughs> it was exactly that.
0: You talk about the Blitz, right? What we should explain, because your book really takes you there. Is what the Blitz was. The Blitz was a nightclub. It was mm. a night. It was a Tuesday night. It wasn't yes. a Saturday night. No. It wasn't in some glamorous location. It was a. Mm. It was a dump. Right? It didn't even have a dance floor, did it?
1: Well, it was a dumpy old wine bar. Yeah. You know, that uh, had a kind of World War Two theme around it.
0: When you say World War II
1: theme... It th- was posters of Winston Churchill yeah. and it looked like it was out straight out of the Blitz. You know, it was kind of like a theme park. Uh, uh, but it was a dirty old place, you know. And, it, and Steve Strange and Rusty Egan took it over one night a week on a Tuesday, like you said. Steve Strange, face of the 80s, changed so many lives you can't imagine, you know, for... Let's say there was like 150 people who went to that nightclub that you know that evening at the Blitz. Uh, uh, so many people did so well out of that. From- but
0: you only got in if Steve Strange allowed you in. It was two quid yeah, on the course. door, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. Rusty
0: was the DJ, Rusty yeah. Egan, and he kind of soundtracked that. And, and I suppose so much of it was inspired by the early works of David Bowie.
1: Well, it was a Bowie night, kind of. Well, it it stemmed from the the club before that was Billy's. And uh, that was a pure Bowie's night, right? And it was kind of people went there dressing as kind of Roxy come Bowie. uh, And that morphed into the blitz when they got kicked out of billets. So it morphed into the blitz, and then Rusty and Steve took it over. And like you say, Steve was the face of it. He was on the door, absolutely a beautiful human being, became one of my best friends. Until you, the,
0: you dedicate the book to him. He meant yeah, so much absolutely. to absolutely.
1: He never stopped trying to pull me his whole life. Did he you not? Know, <laughs> no, every time we went out. And so, yeah, he gave me one of my best friends. And uh, he was... Uh, I, I love him dearly. And I always think that we spoke about Anna Schur giving me the nice side of my personality. I think Steve Strange gave me the bad side. <laughs>
0: the naughty yeah, side. Yeah, the
1: naughty side.
0: So just... For anybody that can't picture Steve Strange, he was think of visage um, mm. and any of those videos. So, well, that's Steve Strange, right?
1: Yeah, he was, he was a piece of art.
0: He was. He was. He was human yeah. art.
1: He was a piece of art. He, he, the first time I met him, I think he was dressed as uh, a space cowboy. Huge padded shoulders, huge black hair pointing up. He must have gone up about his quiff must have been two foot in very high quiff. You know, he had this big black old. Contact lenses over the whole of the eye, and so the white pieces as well. Martian-like. He, oh, he was Martian-like, but I loved him. And I'd never met anyone with such charisma in all my life. I, I remember—I talk about it in the book. I remember the first time I ever saw him was a Generation X gig, and can you imagine somebody being more charismatic than Billy Idol when Billy Idol was the most beautiful kid in the world? And uh, so. Steve Strange stood on the side of the stage, far too far on, you know. He was like just that bit too far. And uh, I was, couldn't take my eyes off Steve, you know. I was a huge Generation X fan, loved Billy Idol. But I couldn't take my eyes off of Steve Strange. He was that charismatic. And then the first time I met him was when I went to pay my, my two quid at the Blitz, And he held my hand and he held it for that bit too long as uh, I gave him my money. That the first time he tried to pull you. Yeah, the first time (laughs) he tried to pull me. Absolutely that. And it it went on from there.
0: Wow. And then you'd walk into the Blitz Club, right? And just paint the scene for me. If you wanted to put your coat into the coat check, who was running the coat check?
1: Oh, Boy George. Boy George ran the coat check. I mean, it was mad. Imagine this. It was coming out of a punk club that was, everybody was down and dirty and it was dressed in their leathers and their, cut jeans and and everybody had was talking about there was no future there was no ambition to so walking into the blitz the most colorful explosion i'd ever seen in my life like there were kids from art school and kids from uh, universities around covent garden the fashion, fashion crowd right it the fashion students yeah wasn't absolutely it? um st martin's college Ooh. and Wearing their outrageous outfits, all in this explosive colour. On the record player, there was, I think the first time I ever walked in, it might have been uh, Boys Keep Swinging, that that was on, Rusty was playing on the deck. And it was just an experience that I will never forget. It was just, everybody was talking about what they were going to do, about the future, about who they wanted to become. Which was it didn't exist in those punk days. So it was a
0: room full of colour and ambition, yeah. right? In yeah. a very black and white post recession yeah. Yeah. Britain that was still really coming to terms with the tail end of World War Two. Yeah. In absolutely. terms of the economics and yeah. just the infrastructure. You talked about growing up playing on World War Two yeah. bomb sites, and then in you go into into this place which is full of the misfits of society who then went on to redraw what society looked like. Right? Yeah. So You had John, John Galliano in there. You had Banana Rama. Eventually George would come along with Andrew Ridgeley. And Ultravox. Wow. Ultravox. I mean, major. Yeah. And it became this kind of petri dish. I mean, like these people went on to create so much of the eighties. And you make a great point in the book. You say economically, I'd love to work out the maths on what they contributed. Yeah. From well, from this sweaty little bar on a Tuesday night that's two quid to get in if you look the right, you know. And a- if exactly. you don't look right, you're not coming
1: in. Exactly. That's why uh, I wanted to um, dedicate the... The book to Steve Strange because Steve, I'm sure Steve would be amazed now if he was still around that how he had changed the face of the 80s without knowing it mm. and so he gave life to so many people. It's incredible. So many different bands would not be here today. The 80s would not have been the same if it wasn't for Steve.
0: And it's it's, it's almost like he was a curator, right? Because he yeah. was a tastemaker, and if he said yeah. you were good, people took notice, which in itself was kind of. Not even soft power, that's just power.
1: Yeah, but at the time he didn't know it, you know. He was having fun. He didn't know what he was doing, but that's what happened. When I first started writing the book, I said to someone, let's put a book together that tries to stem back all of these lives, all of these people that have done so well out of going to the Blitz in those early days, from what? There must have been 100 people in that club hundred people yeah. a, a nucleus of the 80s or, and where it went on to and where it led to uh, is just incredible what Steve created.
0: And it was him it was who he allowed through those doors. yeah so you're right in so many ways he was the innkeeper yeah. of what the 80s yeah went on to become yeah. it was and... either
1: it was either Steve or it was the drug dealer. <laughs> in the what club. was his name? Barry. Barry, Barry the Beast. Yeah, because you know, of course, I was a seventeen-year-old kid, and I was out there to find out who I was, as sexually as well as who I was uh, as a person. And um, you know, you you were just taking the whole thing in. Yeah. But uh, I think Barry, had, Barry the drug dealer, had something to do with uh, how the eighties turned out as well. Yeah, <laughs> I think you created just a few ideas there <laughs> around there somewhere.
0: Um, when you walked through the door. At the Blitz. I mean, Steve Dagger was, was on it, wasn't he, right? While everybody else yeah. was maybe, you know, tucking into Barry's stash. Yeah. Steve was busy making plans. He could see, you know, there was midyear there, there was Sade. Sade. Yeah. I mean
1: Sade. Lee yeah. Barry
0: was there dressed as a candle. All these kind of and Steve suddenly thought how do I put these boys, this band, at the heart of this? How do I give them ownership of this? And that's what he did. He stitched you into the fabric of the Blitz.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like I said, you know, he said... Don't announce that you're in a band. Uh, This was uh, six months before we did. And eventually we did. And Steve Strange wanted to see the band because he was having a birthday party, a Christmas birthday party. Steve Dagger said, why don't we get like 20 big faces in the Blitz, invite them down to uh, a Saturday morning rehearsal in Holloway Road where the band was rehearsing at the time. And we will play a set to them to see what they think. And at that time, we were still called Gentry. And uh, Bob Elms hadn't seen it. He'd only just come back from uh, Berlin with the idea of the name. Right. Uh, but they all stood there and they listened to it. And luckily for us, they loved it. And Steve let us play uh, the, the, you, you uh, the Blitz. You became the Blitz house band, yeah. right? Well, not so much the house band. We, I, I wouldn't say that. We became, um, I suppose in a way, we became the figurehead yes. of that movement. You yeah. know, it was like I was saying in the same ways that The Who became the figureheads of the mods movement, you know. Uh, and we became that because it's easy to look at a band and say, this is what's happening. You know, we were the ones that were getting all the press for it. But really, it was, uh, it was a whole pop culture explosion that we were looking at and we were part of.
0: Well, then Steve dazzled again, didn't he? Because, you know, with people like Bob Elms writing up great reviews on you he also managed to engage the attentions of a very young Janet Street Porter yeah. who made a documentary about the scene at the blitz yeah. and he started to create a buzz which got the labels foaming at the mouth. But this yeah. was a time when nobody had mobile phones or emails. So you guys had gone off, I think, have you gone to Saint-Tropez yeah, to play we some Yeah, we went geeks. to play in
1: Saint-Tropez. Yeah. Listen, that was uh, the oddest thing in the world, you know. As far as I'd been, I, I'd been to Benidorm with my, my mum and dad, you know. And then, and then Steve Dagger calls me up and he says... We've got a a, a two-week residency in this place in Saint-Tropez. I said, what? Saint-Tropez? So, never heard of it, (laughs) you know. It was was craziness, crazy. Uh, And we went down there for two weeks and it was great. It kind of got us out of the way of all that record company business that were happening at the time. So, so
0: what he'd done is he'd got the cameras in via Janet Street Porter to put this document, this this film went out. Yeah. You know, at a time when, like I said, people had three channels, right? So, everybody saw it. But you weren't in the country to sit, so you didn't know... It was, a show, it was a show that
1: Janet got together called 20th Century Box at right. the time and on Channel 4. Uh, so it was kind of like a documentary show and one of the documentaries that were made was about Spandau and about the whole movement. But as soon as that was on TV, it exploded. You know, every, mm. all the newspapers wanted to know about not just the band but wanted to know about the whole pop culture movement of the new romantics and of course like spandau were part of it Uh, and like i I said earlier you know by the time that happened spandau the young spandau pre-record contract spandau was so good it was you know we were all playing our instruments great we looked amazing we were only young kids but a really beautiful bunch of Kids, you were a good-looking bunch. Yeah, a good-looking bunch bunch of kids. You know, I can say that now. I don't have to be humble about that because uh, when I look back, and it was that. You know, I can say that now. I'm 61, and I can look back and I can write about it easy as well. You know, because I kind of feel like I remove myself from the person that I was. Well, I I I found
0: last night your first face cover. You were so they wrote a profile about Spander, but they put you on the cover. And I'd i been the editor of Smash Hits in the 90s. Yeah. So I'd followed the Smash Hits story. So I'd followed Nick's work from yeah. Smash Hits to launching the face and just thought it was mm. the most extraordinary thing. And there you were again, like you'd been all over Smash Hits as a band. And yeah. then there you were transitioning. You're so cool. And the stuff that you wore at the time felt so otherworldly. And and then I discovered reading the book that it was from some secondhand. What's it called? Lawrence Corner.
1: Lawrence Corner. Yeah. It's just off of Oxford Street. And, um... Uh, it was the place that you could go and design your outfit for next Tuesday's Blitz. So
0: everything was geared around what am I going to wear to the Blitz on it Tuesday? Was
1: just really, it was a bunch of leftover stuff from World War II, like uniforms <laughs> and, and, and coats and stuff. But the whole idea of the Blitz, it wasn't to just go and dress as bizarre as you could. You know, it wasn't that. It was about going down feeling as special as you could. It was almost like trying to become a hero just for one day you know and each day you went down you wanted to be the center yeah you wanted to be <laughs> the center of attraction you wanted yeah. to be uh the star in the movie you didn't want to be the extra you know so yeah. it was about being the star in the movie so
0: you would take these clothes and you would cut them up you would accessorize them you would put diamante brooches all over them yeah. you'd buy cheap plastic beads and then the makeup as well, I mean, like you said, by the time you started dating Shirley, you had to start slowly toning down the makeup so she wasn't did, she, she yes. wasn't horrified well, by well, you well, in your natural state.
1: Well, the first time I ever met Shirley, <clears throat> I tell you what happened was, you know, the first time I saw her was the first uh, appearance of Wham on Top of the Pops. Yeah, right? so
0: you were doing your homework, right? You were at home living with your mum and dad still. You and Gary oh, both that, still but, living at home, yeah. right? Pop stars, but living at home. Yeah. And you watched Top of the Pops because you were checking out the competition. Who's doing yeah, what this yeah, week? Yeah, of course. And right. there she
1: was, your future wife. Absolutely. And I, and I absolutely fell in love with her through the TV screen, you know. Immediately? Immediately, yeah. No, well, You know, you, I don't know if it was love or it was infatuation, but it was something that I could not stop thinking about her.
0: You asked around about her, didn't you? You, you yeah, put the feelers out. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And then a few weeks later, I go to an after-show party Uh, It was a show by uh, the McGann brothers called Yakity Yak, And she's standing over the other side of the room. And obviously, you know, your heart goes, flutters a little bit. And I go over and I give her my number. But when I go over and I give her my number, I get a really strange reaction. It wasn't what I wanted. And she said later that it was because you were wearing too much makeup.
0: When you came on with Shirley before, she told this story brilliantly. They had they'd had a bit of time before the party started, and she'd been in town with George and Andrew, and David
1: Austin. Yeah, that's right.
0: And so David at the time was making a bit of pin money as a lifeguard, so they'd gone swimming they'd because it was swimming, free, yeah. right? So you come over the hot guy from Spandau Ballet, and she's still stinking of mm-hmm. chlorine with no makeup on. Well, that's so her fault. So she was trying to get rid of you because she was like, "Not now, Martin." Yeah, but
1: that's her fault. She shouldn't have gone <laughs> swimming and gone straight to the theatre. <laughs> but listen, she look. I thought she looks absolutely. St- Stunning, you know. So uh, it was about three weeks later, uh, my phone went and it was uh, Shirley asking for me. But by all accounts, Shirley will tell you the story that it was, she was round Yog's uh, bedroom. Yog was saying to her, why haven't you called him yet? Call him, you know, he's going to yeah. move he's on. Fit. You should he's fit, Yeah, he's going to move, he's, he's going to go somewhere else. Call him. So he dialed the number, George dialed the number and gave her the receiver and said, right, make a date. So it was down to George.
0: And then he came on the date as well. He came on it as well. But I love the fact, because I've I've spoken to him about your first date. And I've spoken to you both as well. Yeah. But what I love is the fact that he was a bit like a waiter come bouncer where he'd just keep popping up just as you were about to go in for a yeah. little bit of intimacy. You'd go, is everything all right? Would you guys <laughs> like a drink? Can I get you anything? Like...
1: Yeah, absolutely. What We couldn't get rid of him all night long. <laughs> you know, I remember Did once... Did you end up snuggling her on yeah, a fire escape uh, yeah, at the Camden escape, Palais? Fire escape. And he can't even turn up on a fire escape. I don't know. Oh, do you, you please. And so, anyway, listen, it's a dear, dear memory. That. Love it's it. a dear memory. Uh, uh, and I, I, while we were on the subject, you know, I miss him like crazy. I miss him like crazy. He was one of the most, the world's most generous people. Not Wasn't just me? with his money, but with his time and his emotion and everything. Uh, and, yeah, I miss him like crazy.
0: A very, very special talent. Yeah. And, um with a heart as big as his talent, actually, and that's that's, that's rare.
1: It's funny, over the years, it seems like, as I get older, the people that go first are all the big characters, you know... Paulie Paul Yates and Steve Strange yeah. and Yogg and, you know, all the people that brought all that colour into your life uh, disappear.
0: Oh, you're so right. What a great loss, all very much missed and all very much acknowledged for the incredible contributions that they made. Thank you so much to Martin Kemp, but fear not, there is plenty more where that came from. So good was my chat with him. We've had to carve it up into two extraordinary episodes. So that was part one. Part two is winging its way to you on the next drop, but... Don't go anywhere because up next, a very special bonus mini episode with myself and the wonderful Made by Mamas ladies, Zoe Hardman and Georgia Dayton, where we get to live out our millionaire fantasies on behalf of the National Lottery. I'll be back again next week with more Martin Kemp because there's no such thing as too much Martin Kemp. In the meantime, uh, my thanks to Maria Nibs and the Yahoo Studios team who produced the show with me. Our music as ever is by Andy Bell and the editing comes from Eleanor Humphrey. Oh, and don't go anywhere, because here are Zoe and Georgia. This next special segment of White Wine Question Time is brought to you by the National Lottery and they've asked us to delve into a question that I know we've all asked ourselves a million times. What would you do if you won the jackpot on the national lottery and I'm not alone in this today I'm going to be joined by podcasting legends Zoe Hardman and Georgia Dayton from the Made by Mamas podcast and together we are going to dream spend our jackpot win ladies how are you well I (laughs) mean Georgia
3: we're rich (laughs) bathing in cash um, you know, covered in jewels, being, being vulgar.
0: We're, we're having being the best indulged. time indulged. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's dreamy stuff, isn't it? You have just won the national lottery jackpot. Yeah. What do you do? Where are you spending? How's life going to change? So many questions. How do you announce it to everyone?
3: And how soon do you tell your closest family, if at all?
0: I tell everybody straight away because I am a big believer in, um, not finding the discussion around money vulgar.
4: Andy. that's yeah. really good do you know what I've thought about this a lot and I kind of go back and forth with I you know if I won the national lottery would I go public or would I not and I, I think I, I I think I wouldn't I think I'd try and keep it under the radar
0: yeah controversial I just
4: disappear yeah. with my carer. And then (laughs) live live my life, Yeah, but then because you're a nice person
0: and people care about you, there'll be like a missing persons campaign. It'll be a waste of police resources. (laughs) You've got to fess up, George. So
3: what about you?
0: You know how those people have
3: like gender reveal parties and they will like fire a cannon or like burst balloons. I would get all of my, I'd get friends, people that I didn't know, people on my street. I'd get everyone round. I'd fire a cannon and it would blow out tiny little pieces of paper and on them it would say... I'm rich, and that is how, I, <laughs> how, I would, that's how I'd announce it. I'd always. just go really understated, kind of yeah. casual vibes with that one. Totally. But, you yeah, know what, that's how I'd make the announcement,
0: I think. What do you think?
4: <laughs> what would you do for your kids, Kate?
0: For my kids, um, give them absolutely nothing at this stage. She's 14. I think if you've been lucky enough to work around people that are very successful or very wealthy, you understand very quickly. Money is um, something that you've got to understand the value of, but I do think you've got to teach them to work for it. Mm-hmm. I do, as much as the, it's in me to go, have everything. Um, I don't know that they would grow up to be the human beings you want them to be if they didn't really appreciate the value of a pound.
3: If you did win the National Lottery, what would be your one big stupid purchase? Like, go crazy, go wild. What, what Me? Be, be vulgar. Yeah, Kate. Yeah.
0: You. Me? Okay, um, I'm going to... It's going to be huge. It's going to be properties ease yeah lots of them uh in different places so i'm gonna have one in ibiza because it's my spiritual home i love it there love it there and uh, what about you so um the
3: one big stupid purchase i've I got to be honest i think i would buy myself my favorite ever car that i've never been able to afford and that Richies. would be the porsche 911 i've wanted it Richie. since i since I could drive, I just want to be a Porsche idiot and just fly around that it's showing off, flicking my hair around, like trying to drive into the lettos and leather. Um, yeah, I just think it would just be really, really fun to have. And I would just get it in cash and be like, wouldn't even matter. It'd be like going to the supermarket and buying a pack of biscuits, wouldn't it? Because I'd have yeah, so much money in. in the bank. It wouldn't matter.
4: Right. So enough about us. Which charities or good causes would you donate to if you won the National Lottery, Kate?
0: OK, so this I have given a lot of thought to. I have huge respect for um, what the Gateses are doing with the help of Warren Buffet. Um, So the answer is lots, because I would be rubbish and not having structure to my day. So my day would be philanthropy and I would set up a, a charity grant with my winnings from the National Lottery. And I would encourage people to apply for support for all charitable causes and it would become my life's work. Oh, okay, Kate. For PM. I'd love to do it as well. You oh, just feel so good, wouldn't you? It's an yeah. entirely selfish um, ambition, really, because it is just about making yourself feel good by helping others. But there are so many great causes, and I love the idea of micro grants. So, people that have got small solutions to big problems on a local level—that kind of stuff. So, what about you? Well, um, I don't know if you know this, Kate,
3: but my mum and dad started a charity in Africa. They've got a school for kids with HIV and AIDS and, um, and education is absolutely everything to me. And I often feel real devastation when I go back there because I keep thinking, what if my kids don't have, you know, like these kids there, they just don't have the opportunity to be educated. So my whole, th- you know, my, my whole thing in life is, is giving those kids the opportunity. And Africa, you know, there are certain countries in Africa that just shouldn't be a third world. A situation going on there, but they've got so many greedy people at the top, they just take all of the money, and, you know, these kids are left without any any form of proper schooling. So I would pump a large amount of money into, you know, not not just my parents' charity, the Vapingo Village Fund, but also loads of other small charities in Africa that are trying to do the right thing over there. George, what about you? Have you got any charities that you've got a special connection with?
4: Do you know what? No charities in particular, but I think I would do random acts of kindness, so I would... Pay someone's nursery bill, or I just go into a nursery and say to them, you know, what's the, what, how much do you need for the year? I'll pay for everybody's childcare for this year, oh. and I just, I think I do little things like that, um, and yeah, pay for people shopping in the supermarket, pay, for, you know, just, just do things like that, pay for people's everyday life. I think. Well, I do it in secret. I think. I think I like to look from afar.
0: <laughs> if we've won the national lottery, problem solved. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Of yeah, course we yeah. have. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, sorted. Bye. Yeah, <laughs> So remember, the National Lottery is where your numbers make amazing happen. Whether it's that big jackpot win or helping the National Lottery good causes across the country continue the amazing work they do.